You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 30th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, friends. Minus 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Where on, like, the far side of Mars? Where is this? Yeah, that's (laughs) that's how cold it's getting in the Midwest. The Midwest? That's like... Oh, Antarctica. it's Antarctica. Temperatures. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Well, you verified yeah. that? Minus 6.0? Minus 6.5 is what with I the wind chill, multiple, right? With five. the wind chill. That's the wind chill. It's like minus Fahrenheit. 30. Yeah. Decimal numbering system. What does that mean to you, Steve? <laughs> it means we're glad we're not in Chicago. Apparently, like the polar vortex split in two, and part of it is wandering, is like driving this Arctic air down, deep down into the yep. Midwest. Luckily, we're like, we're right on the edge of it in Connecticut, so it's we're getting some seasonably cold weather, but not right. crazy. Yeah, yeah like let that. me state yeah, the obvious: three degrees so, Fahrenheit tomorrow night. I think yeah, everyone should right benefit from this. Here's yeah. the here's here's the obvious question: hmm. What about global warming? <laughs> yes, it's Thanks. there. You go. Not, it, uh, yes, Jay, and I can uh, answer that. The, <laughs> the reason that the polar vortex split was because of the shrinking ice shelf, uh, which is caused by you named it. Mm-hmm. Climate change, global warming, and it's just yeah. going to get worse. So it all, you know, and and then then there's of course the whole difference between climate and weather and all that baloney, which we don't need to get into for our audience. In fact, I read that the uh, ice has retreated so much it's uncovering areas of, say, Greenland that haven't been looked at or haven't we haven't had a chance to uh, investigate. Samples dating back 120,000 years of of fauna and other things that have been covered for so long that are now Whoa. being exposed. Mm-hmm. So it, that's kind of a silver lining, I suppose, in a way. Nope. But it's but, it's, <laughs> but uh, you're no, right, but, Kara. It's bad. But it it's could bad. get far worse because you got thawing thawing permafrost. Is a scary concept. I mean, there could yeah, be it's scary all sorts for CO2. of nasty things. Yes. Yeah, but it's also that scary for bad. what is it, albedo? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. The thing, as you know, comes out of a block of ice and probably landed on our planet a couple hundred thousand years ago. I mean, this is serious business. Uh, yeah, at least a hundred. Was that a segue? Years. I don't think so. No, no. no. <laughs> that was a reference to the movie The Thing. It's interesting, though, that his <laughs> The Thing segue could have, or his The Thing reference could have been a segue. It sounded like it sounded segue like for sure. No, you'll see when we get to my story. Um, so Chicago, <laughs> the low tonight, and this is in Fahrenheit, people. I apologize. The low tonight is negative twenty-one, but that's the actual temperature, not the wind chill. You never and have the to low apologize tonight for Fahrenheit. In Antarctica is. Negative 23. Summer summer down there, yeah. Isn't that amazing, though? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's summer down there, you guys. (laughs) Yeah, big, that's important. (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. They're basically saying, telling people, stay inside. Because you go outside in that temperature, it'll kill you. Yeah, I'm seeing people even inside their houses. Like, there's all these pictures on Twitter, on Instagram, of people trying to insulate their windows with stuffed animals, people, the inside of their doorknobs being frozen solid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Somebody mentioned that they left their clothes in the dryer and their dryer was outside and all their clothes are frozen into the dryer. Yeah, I have my dryer outside. And some people need to be careful because some people, like in apartments or or other places, are heating heating their spaces with kerosene and other Mm. uh, devices that that have these fumes and chemicals that are really bad. And when you can't let your home, you know, 
yeah, you can't have, open the window. Airflow, and you start sealing things up. Well, you're just trapping a lot of those those dangerous chemicals in there with you. So you need to be cautious about that as well. You need to make sure that those things are vented properly. You know what else they're using kerosene for in Chicago? Is they're actually setting having to, train tracks on fire? Yeah, right? light the rails on I fire so that. they don't buckle. Oh my gosh! Isn't that amazing? And they're just wow. like the train tracks are all on fire on purpose. So global warming, because of its changes to the overall world climate, it can make extreme cold happen. It can make extreme yeah. hot happen. It'll yeah. it'll increase the amount of energy that storms have. I'm thinking about, you know, if I should even try to post something on Facebook about, you know, this, because I just don't want people to come freaking out. Because every time I, I put anything up about global warming, people lose their minds. But, mm. you know, I think it's important for us to stay calm and use this as an example and maintain maintain our our composure as we see people deny that this is just you know the storms happen and this is always, you know storms like this are not unique they happen when we were kids i already heard that you know oh yeah we had storms like this when i was a kid well mm-hmm. that's irrelevant yeah yeah right but yeah the consensus is that uh, global warming can cause extreme weathers on both sides including cold yeah so, and yeah, that's just because you've grab. had A storm like this, and just because historically there's been extreme weather always, we are Mm -hmm. seeing more of it. We're seeing it closer together. We're seeing it bleed into seasons when it wasn't before happening. Like, it's irregular. It's not just that it's happening. We're having record-breaking weather after record-breaking weather, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I like my my Arctic weather in the Arctic, not in in Minnesota. And it is, if you think about it, it is counterintuitive. You hear, you know, if, if you think simplistically like that, you, you, you hear global warming. So therefore, the summers are going to get hotter and the, uh, the winters are going to become more mild. It kind of makes sense, right? If, if it's yeah, global because of the, warming. It's not a but, great term. That's why we right. try to say climate change instead. Right. right. Yeah. It's just, uh, and also, you know, as, as I learned recently, although not with this bad, when you combine an extreme cold weather event with a power outage, then you're in serious trouble. Oh, mm. yeah, I was brutal. thinking about that. Imagine it's minus 60 outside your house and the power goes out. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah, pan- yeah. That's, that's like grab your towel and panic. Grab your towel. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you do? Like it's probably a good idea to have either a generator backup or mm-hmm. have some type of way to heat your house that doesn't require electricity. Fireplaces. Or oil. Yeah, if if you live in a place where that's the issue, on the opposite side, you need to be able to cool yourself if you live in a place where you're going to potentially lose power in a horrible heat wave, which mm-hmm. is happening in the summer. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, all right. We have a good show for you this week. Kara, you're going to start us off with a what's the word? You haven't done one in a while. I know. So uh, I do have a what's the word, and it was actually recommended by Mike Walterich from Michigan. He said, I didn't see – oh, sorry. He said, I just learned the word prosody from a TED Talk, and I'm suggesting it because it's interesting. Here is the video where I heard it. Um, Thanks for the science, Mike. I love this word. I use it or I did use it and have used it quite a bit in neuroscience training. Steve, you're probably um, quite aware of this word in classic studies of language, development of language, damage. But as I dug into it, I realized that prosody has a lot of different definitions. Um, It is defined in poetry and music um, or more like spoken word kind of rap and things like that as the patterns of rhythm and sound in language uh, linguistics a lot we hear it 
We hear a description about stress, about intonation. But of course, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the neuroscientific definition, which has to do with the emotional component of language, the emotional component. So when you know what we that's look prosody. Yeah, but there's a, there's a, there's a, to clarify which meaning of the word prosody, sometimes we technically use the term affective prosody. Have oh, that would that? make sense. Yeah, yeah, affective. Yeah, so affect is your emotional behavior, I guess you can put it. So yeah. it's the way, like in a mental status exam, a neurologist or a psychologist might write down descriptions of somebody's affect, which is how their mood is being expressed on their face and their body language and in their the way that they're talking. So a flat affect is somebody who's speaking without any change in the tone of their voice, and they just seem really withdrawn and really flat. And so when you look at, for example, schizophrenia, it has positive symptoms and negative symptoms. A flat affect would be related to these negative symptoms, which are kind of low and unchanging, unwavering. So that's sort of a lack of prosody of language or a flat prosody of language. And the cool thing is there are brain regions that are responsible for this. Speech is fascinating. We talked about speech a lot on the show last week. We kind of we kind of came to fisticuffs a little about some research and, and where we think the research could be potentially going, how soon we might be able to have, what would you call them, neural prostheses for speech, I guess. It, it comes down to some of these conversations. So when we speak that occurs in complicated regions of the brain but there are some central areas like Broca's area where we are actually creating the motor part of speech motor speech is located um, not completely but in the cortical part of Broca's area which is on the left side of the brain but then also on the left hemisphere of the brain there's something called the Wernicke's area. So we often talk about Broca's area and Wernicke's area, and these are really um, important for speech. And so Broca's is the motor part. It's actually producing the speech. And then Wernicke's is the part where we kind of comprehend speech, both in written and spoken language. And Kara, just to be technically precise, mm -hmm. it's the dominant hemisphere which is the left Ooh. side for most people, You're but right. not everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, and the interesting thing is in some people where it's switched, it's more commonly switched in people who are left-handed, which correct. is also fascinating. Um, good call on that. You're right. Neurotypically left side, but mm -hmm. um, I think it's something like 10%? No, 5%. 5% for a right-hand dominant people and it goes up to 15 or something for left-hand Yeah, dominant much higher people. for yeah. left-hand dominant. You're right, yeah. Sometimes they're flipped. And so, but on the right side of the brain, kind of opposite that region, I think opposite the Wernicke's region, is where we actually process the emotional component of language, which is super cool. So there are these studies, uh, case studies of patients who have damage to the, that right region of the brain and either they can't produce or they can't recognize emotion and speech. So they can speak or they can understand speak, but they can't tell when somebody, one of the biggest things is they can't tell when somebody's being sarcastic, for example. Right. Or asking a question. Or asking a question. <laughs> yeah, because oh. those are, those have to do with the prosody of the language, but the words are still coming out no problem. They just can't figure out where the emphasis is, where the tone is, and how all of those components come together to give you a deeper understanding of the language than just the words alone. So almost imagine texting. You hear all the time this conversation like, oh, we need a sarcasm symbol, because <laughs> some things just don't come across in text. And they almost have that kind of experience, but even with hearing 
the word. Yeah, so so you're yeah, so the non-dominant temporal lobe is where your emoji center is. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you need the emojis. Yeah. It's it's really fascinating, but of course, broaden that out from neuroscience and prosody has become a really interesting part of study in linguistics. It's become an interesting study in poetry. I mean, obviously prosody is so important in both producing and understanding all of these different aspects of language. So it is a really cool word and there's a lot to it. There's even a lot of controversy around how, you know, how much of these brain regions really control this kind of stuff. How much damage can you have before it really does affect your um, your ability to understand or to produce speech? It's it's a fascinating area of study. Yeah, it's also music is on the non-dominant you know, reflected mm-hmm. side from language. And often, like when patients have a stroke in their language area that makes them aphasic, they're unable to speak, we could still get them to sing. And we always yeah. do that to demonstrate it to students. Um, if they, they can't communicate with singing, but they could, they could sing a song that they had, that, that everyone has memorized. So the commonly will start singing happy birthday and they can, sort of sing happy birthday. They still have some trouble with expressive, depending on how thorough their aphasia is. They might have difficulty pronouncing the words, but they can go through the tune and and sort of say the words, you know, even though they're, they otherwise can't speak because that's on the other side of the brain. And that's a perfect segue, Steve, for a very quick note about the actual etymology of the term. It's quite old. It's from the late 15th century, but it was only first used in a neuroscience or neurological sense in 1947, in a case study by, um, I think you pronounce it Monrad Crone, it's hyphenated. And I found this paper by Jack Gander from Purdue, Frontiers of Brain Mapping of Speech Prosody. And this is fascinating. I'm just going to read a sentence out of the abstract of the paper. The notion of speech prosody dates back to Mondrad Crone's case study of a woman who was unable to produce the phonemic tone contrast in her native Norwegian dialect, even though she retained considerable musical ability. So Mm -hmm. that's the other thing. Even within the prosody regions, it's probably more subdivided than that. So somebody might be able to sing and they might be able to speak, but they might not be able to use prosody in their speech, even though they can still sing or understand music, but they can't understand the prosody of language. So it's, it's so complicated. Yeah. It's cool. And it's, yeah, it's really cool. So um, anyway, if you break down the word to its uh, Greek and then its Latin, prose, the first part of the word, um, means like near or forward. And uh, the OD part is actually taken from ode or oid, which eventually became ode, which is a song or a poem. So it's near a poem. It's, it's towards a poem. It's similar to a poem or a song. Yeah, right. Yeah, I love that. Cool. All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Cool. So I got uh, to start the news segment off. I had I got this from multiple people, uh, either uh, asking me about it specifically or just you know sending it to, for to my attention. Uh, this is an article that's uh, making the rounds and is spreading like quote unquote wildfire on uh, social media. Oh yeah, yeah. The the t- this originally from the Jerusalem Post because it's yes. about an Israeli company. Mm-hmm. Here's the title yeah. of the original. I read article. it an hour ago. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> the, the headline is "A Cure for Cancer." Oh my gosh! Israeli right scientists say they think they found one. Oh boy! I mean, I mean, really, we're we're so I'm so conditioned now. Anytime I see cancer cure in a headline, I immediately start to throw up the red flags without even oh, yeah. reading about it. 
Yeah, yeah. True. That's a huge red flag and – at least so far, it's not never been true. <laughs> uh, and then the body of the article is just, just as bad. So they, they're oh. quote they start out with a quote from the uh, the CEO of the company. The company is Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Limited, or AEBI. The CEO is Dan Aridor, uh, son of Arathor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> At least I imagine that is the case. So that was awesome, Steve. Lord of the Rings, uh, Karen. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. He is quoted as saying, we believe we will offer in a year's time a complete cure for cancer. Oh, my god! This is a quote from him. And he goes on to say, our cancer cure will be effective from day one, will last a duration of a few weeks, and will have no or minimal side effects at a much lower cost than most other treatments on the market. Our solution will be both generic and personal. Wow. That is a lot of crap right there. Yeah, that's a lot. So it's the perfect product, right? Whenever you hear yeah, that's right. a company, like basically a company <laughs> press release saying, we've developed the perfect product that tick, mm-hmm. chi- yeah, ticks all the boxes. <laughs> Steve, the only word missing there is miracle. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> stick the word miracle anywhere in there and that would or be perfect. Or snake oil. Oh, sorry. Steve, <laughs> now, when you say cancer, is he saying all cancer? Yeah. 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 Can- yes. That's the big, that's, that's the big intense right. part. Doesn't because matter. Cancer's all cancer is one thing, right, Jay? Apparently. They just target cancer and cancer's gone. The end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Eridor is the chairman of the board. The CEO is, is Alan Morad. Um, they call son, their treatment Son of Thorad. Mutato. No, that's, and he's from Morador, Steve. <laughs> yeah, he's from Morad from Morador. That's – can't make this up. All right. So, <laughs> we try. Their we try. treatment's called M-U-T-A-T-O or Mutato, Mutato, whatever. Which stands for multi-target – Toxin. Now, here's the thing. This is such a great example of this particular type of misleading uh, type of news. It is, in a way, quote unquote, fake news, but of this very particular type that I encounter quite often in the medical realm. In fact, like just last week, I had another one keyed up that was about MS. Some company claims to have cured multiple sclerosis. It's exactly the same phenomenon. So, what you do is you have this company who takes some you know, nascent technology, right? Some, some technology. And then they just make all kinds of crazy claims for it. They, they extrapolate from what we think may be true in the most optimistic, rosy projections. And they claim that it is true. Um, and they, they, but it sounds reasonable and scientific to somebody who doesn't, you know, is not an expert, who doesn't know the literature and know how these things work. Because there's a, there's a reason for all of the claims. But the thing is, it's the, the, he's assuming that the mechanism is going to work perfectly. Right. And he, so through the article, he's quoted as saying, well, it should do this because of this reason and it should do that because of this other reason. It's like, yeah, and all technology should work perfectly exactly as we intend without any, without any problems. But he has no actual evidence that it in fact will work that way. <laughs> the other, the other thing that he does is take absolutely standard approaches and somehow make it seem like it's his own. You know, like it's like they've oh. innovated it. So, this is what they're doing. They're using phage display. Have, do you guys remember that term? This was uh, the Nobel yeah. Prize. The Nobel Prize, P-H-A? yes. Yeah. Say it again, Steve. Okay. How do you spell that? Phage, P-H-A-G-E. So mm-hmm. phages are viruses that infect bacteria. And the Nobel Prize was for 
using uh, a technique to get phages to display antibodies on their outside, which could then be used as a way of targeting or labeling different cells or different proteins or whatever. And it's a great way to do research. So what they're doing is phage display, but instead of antibodies, they're using small proteins, small peptides, I should say, small sequences of amino acids. Which are smaller and cheaper and and common. So he he wants to have a phage display three peptides, each of which is a different toxin targeted against a cancer cell. Like a t- cocktail, like an HIV cocktail, right? Right. Yeah. He says, yeah, where by targeting three different uh, targets, then that will prevent resistance. So they, they, it'll kill all the cancer cells and they won't have a chance to mutate and develop or evolve resistance to the to the treatment. But wait, how does it know it's a cancer cell? Well, because they're going to exploit some feature that's unique to the cancer and or that's overexpressed in cancer versus a healthy cell, right? So, they, oh, that, that target is expressed much more in a cancer cell than a healthy cell. So we're going to make a peptide that'll target that whatever, that protein. And that way, it'll deliver the toxin only to cancer cells. But is that like an established thing in all cancer, that they'll be able to find some sequence on every single type of cancer cell? Well, the thing is, the the, ba- the more basic concept of exploiting mm-hmm. the difference, be- some kind of physiological difference between cancer cells and healthy cells new is that. the basis of no, all exactly. chemotherapy. Cancer biology. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is, like, yeah, this is all of cancer science, basically. So that's Ugh. nothing new, but he's explaining it as if it's this new idea, this new concept. And plus oh the gosh. idea of using multiple treatments to prevent resistance is also nothing new. Of course. So this is all just off the shelf, basic, already standard of care established stuff, but he's presenting it as this narrative. Like this innovative treatment has all these features which are new and unique. And then here's the other thing. So I looked up phage peptides cancer treatment, and this goes back to 2001. Whoa. There's, hmm. I found, that, yeah, so 253 articles come up on PubMed. But there are at least a dozen or so cancer studies looking at this in the treatment of different types of cancer going back 18 years. So even that is not new. That bit isn't new either. And the fact that it's not new, it's like even beyond that, obviously our ability to fight, to treat, to destroy cancer tissue is not perfect. Mm-hmm. We know this, right? Like there are offsite targets and we always are going to attack healthy, not always, but generally are going to attack healthy tissue. And beyond that, most of our cancer treatments have horrific side effects, which is why we're always trying to look for a molecular marker, a newer, better way to yeah. target cancer. But like what about theirs solves that problem? Nothing. Yeah. Again, he's, so they, they have, as far as I could tell, they have nothing new except maybe some tweaks or incremental changes to how they're doing it, whatever. But all of the basic concepts are well-established, even using phage peptides to target cancer cells is 18 years old. Mm. So, so you know, what's I the just, deal, Steve? Is this a money grab? Like, is it simply just a way for them to generate funds? To get funding, probably. So, yeah. yeah so most of the time, again, I don't know what this particular instance is, but a lot of times this type of thing is a, is a way to, a, to lure investors. Uh, right. So the, the, the classic now example of this is Theranos, right? You guys remember Th- Theranos? Oh, sure. Well, Thanos, uh, yeah, he killed all those superheroes, man. Half of them. <laughs> no, no, uh. Theranos with the, um, with the, right, the blonde CEO. I can't remember her this name. Was, this company at its prison. peak. 
The, at its peak, this company was valued at $10 billion. Elizabeth and, Holmes. Oh. Yep. Yeah, and it was all based on air, on nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote about it at the time. I have to pat myself on the back because as <laughs> soon as this came out, I'm like, this is totally fishy. And it was the exact pat, same pat, thing. Pat. It was all – no, seriously. It was, she was making a lot of claims that were leaps ahead in the research. There was no basic science to back it up. It was all the same kind of thing. We're going to do this and that. It's going to work out perfectly. Yeah, like, wasn't oh, it some sort of like – like full laboratory blood. testing, yeah, yeah, like lab tests to test for everything in your blood. You know what this reminds me of, Steve? Have you guys watched the Fire Festival documentary on no. Netflix? F Y R E, F Y R E, totally fit. I bet right? you, yeah, it's one of those things where they sold an idea, they sold a concept that they hadn't tested they didn't know if they could afford it they didn't and it it blew up in their faces they sold this big music festival on a private island and it ended up being basically a refugee camp like they built a refugee camp it was (laughs) banana and the guy went to prison it's fraud yeah it's it is a kind of fraud at some point you cross this fuzzy line and it becomes fraud right so i mean basically you know overhyping your company's claims is advertising right this is like base baseline we expect this but if you go too far it becomes misleading and if you go way too far it becomes fraud and also if we're talking about potential biomedical treatments there are more standards on this because oh, sure. we've Ethical got the fda involved else. we've got you know what i mean sure. like we're talking about something that could we need to know you can't just say whatever you want to say about medicine for example so this right. company is not only overhyping a bunch of ideas they're not even their own right there's nothing even <laughs> new here it's all stuff that's been in the literature for 18 years but here's the other thing right even even if their claims were new they they claim that they've done some mouse research, right. but they haven't they haven't published even their mouse research. They skipped the whole peer process. They, yeah, they and, the and, whole and they're extrapolating process. from mouse studies. Talk about a classic mistake. And it, and it's their own studies, which count for zero. In house, unpublished preclinical studies, and the worst. So best case scenario, they're fifteen to twenty years away from proving that this is safe and effective clinically in humans for specific cancers. And that's just like for one or two types of cancer. To say that we're a year for away from curing all cancers is ridiculous, even if everything they were saying were true and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't and it I mean it, it the, probably isn't. The they taste amazing. Are they are they even scientists? Who could make who would make such claims? It's gotta be like a, a PR guy gone crazy. What 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 could explain Or like some sort of entrepreneurial startup that like it's you know startup. like Thanatos so like where it's like it's entrepreneurs who just have like consultants from the scientific field and then you know it's like this weird silicon valley idea like oh i can Mm -hmm. solve this problem when none of cancer biology which is like thousands of hundreds of thousands of people billions of dollars has been able to. so it's like it's like saying just to give you a random example it's like describing it's like saying we're going to go to mars in a year and then describing (laughs) basic rocketry yeah. <laughs> okay, that's how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to build hit this the, tube. We hit and the launch button, and there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then we'll get there, and we'll accelerate. Let me explain acceleration to you. Right? That's what they're doing, and then we're so going to get like to So it's like when the president says, I'll give you all the money you need, and we're like, that's not the problem, my friend. Yeah. So there are billions of – I mean, there, there, are, there are labs and countries around the world investing billions of dollars in cancer research. There is a, a robust – mature oh, yeah. research program ongoing any it, it takes time 
for ideas to build in the literature and for people to realize that this is a possible way to approach cancer. And when that, when an idea is ripe, multiple labs will be contributing to it. So the idea also like this one company working in isolation is going to make some huge leap forward in a mature area like this is inherently implausible. Never say impossible. It's just really implausible to the point that you could, you know, if you were a betting person, you would say, yeah, this is not going to happen. And at least so far, I've been right every single time. (laughs) Well, and also Israel is a developed country with intense medical standards in place. Like they do good science in Israel. So even if they had an idea, think about just how long it takes from an idea to go through phase one trial, to go through animal studies and to be tested on humans and then to be able to enter the marketplace. Like even if they had an idea, it would be longer than a year. It's 10 years best case. If everything goes well, if everything goes perfectly well, it's 10 years. I mean, what (laughs) could they have possibly have seen to warrant such – you know, such confidence. It's 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 crazy that You're, that yeah, it's, it, it's so un, it strikes me as so unsophisticated and 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 just immediately turns anyone who's familiar with this stuff against you. It's like what, what kind of reactions are you trying and, to? Provoke? Yeah, but Bob, but the internet is blowing up, and people think, right. "Oh my God, we've cured right. cancer." You that's know, my that's question. How did they hoodwink so many media outlets to cover this? This is they a vi- viral load right here. Yeah. Just one, one last thing. One last thing. Keep in mind that there was a study using this technique to, to, in an attempt to treat cancer. Eight. 18 years ago, mm-hmm. and it still isn't established as a treatment. That's how long it takes to develop technology like this. We're already 18 years in. They're not going to fix this problem in one year. You know what I mean? They're not going to cross the finish line in a year when they have unpublished preclinical mouse data. You know, and who uses happening. this terminology? Our cancer cure will be effective from day one. What does that even mean? We'll have no side effects. No side effects. When? Yeah, However, been, is that the like, case? We know, vaccines have like you know <laughs> things that are so simple and that solve so many problems have right. side effects. Like Tylenol has side effects. Right. Everything has. I, I don't know. <laughs> Steve, does, every, does just about every yes. – is there much. anything that doesn't have a side effect that's no. legitimate? Right. No. I mean like breathing yeah, techniques, I, mean, you could I suppose. Be, I don't think it's unreasonable to be confident that in the future with, with targeted medicine that you'll be you'll be able to minimize side effects to, minimize, to, to a much greater, much greater degree than, than they're now. The fact is that over the years, and we talked about this recently, you know, cancer treatments are getting better and better. There are fewer and fewer side effects because we are getting better at targeting the treatment. We are getting less resistance. It's more effective. Survival is steadily going up. That's because of incremental advances made by all of this kind of stuff. So when, and, and like the other thing here is that just the idea that, okay, look at, we're going to do this and this is why it should work against cancer cells. That kind of claim is made all the time. And a lot of times it turns out to be true. And when it is true, it doesn't cure cancer. Right. It just adds incrementally to our armamentarium and we move the Ooh. ball forward one notch, right? So even when, oh, look, we can shut down blood supply to solid tumors and totally choke them off. That's great. That's it didn't right. cure Remember cancer. That? Didn't cure cancer, but it, it's another treatment that increased survival in the cancers that are relevant. And so I would I firmly believe in five or 10 or 15 years, this type of approach, if it pans out, is going to move the ball forward. Well, it'll this will be the kind of thing that adds to our cancer survival, but it's not going to be a cure. Right now, we're in we're at the beginning of 
the application of things that we were talking about 10, 15, 20 years ago, mainly immune therapy for cancer. That's sort of the hot thing right now where they're using your, they're targeting your own immune system at the cancer. And it's great. It's working really well. It's increasing survival times. It's increasing putting people into remission, but it hasn't cured all of cancer in a day, right? Oh, gosh. Mm. So it's just irresponsible. But the, the fact that it was, it took off so much in social media. Yeah. Shows you how effective this kind of deception can be, which is why you know, I jumped on it and wrote about it on Science Based Medicine today. Because you've got to you've got to get into the social media, you know, timeline. You know, you got to be yeah, be quickly. Some, yeah, be you quickly. can't wait days. You have to get in within minutes. It's too, it's too late. Yep. And yeah. this is even like knowledgeable skeptics are like, hey, what's up with this? This sounds because if you read it, unless you're a, you know a, a physician or have some idea how this works. It, it superficially sounds compelling, you know. Well, that's pseudoscience for you, right? Are doctors that specialize in this that are at, at the forefront of the research, are they commenting on this? Are they, yes. Are they, give us an idea of what's happening. Some of the better outlets, not not the original article, um, but I've seen some, some mainstream articles saying that uh, cancer doctors are skeptical of these claims, are reacting to these claims with skepticism. So there, there, is, there is a little bit of a backlash from the community because everyone, you know, again, any cancer researcher would look at this and go, dude, really? I mean, <laughs> come on, this is totally irresponsible. And so that they're, they're, the actual experts are re- having the predictable response and it is starting to get into the second and third round of reporting. On this, but the original article with the catchy headlines is is what's going viral. All right, let's move on, Jay. We're going to go on to a different area, but this is similar in that there's the the risk of overhyping what might just be a preliminary or incremental advance. This one's about fuel. Yep, I agree. It sounds really good, and I'm going to give you a a, a run through of what the articles online are currently saying. And then we can discuss whether or not we we believe it's as good as it sounds. About this, they're saying that there's major problems uh, with renewable energy storage, right? So renewable energy, the collection of renewable energy is one thing. And we have a lot of really good methods and, you know, solar panels – is in the forefront, and the the efficiency of those solar panels keeps going up. It's not going up by leaps and bounds, but it's it's def- like batteries. It's increasing incrementally. Yeah, it's like we could see one percent per year, pretty steadily. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you know we have lots of ways to collect renewable energy. We have solar arrays, wind farms, dams. People have even tried to reclaim energy from the water. You know from the from the tides. So these energy sources are intermittent and unpredictable. I would say, you know, out of all of them, if if a dam had enough water in it, well, then you could push more water through the dam and you can make that generate energy. Um, yeah, that's I, on course, demand. That's what they do. It's a little bit more on demand. But we're trying to figure out, you know, you know ways around this problem because the, the, there's a problem – with batteries, right? Tesla and other companies have been working on improving battery storage. I'm super excited about it. There's an example that uh, you know Tesla created the Powerwall, and it's this you know relatively big monolithic battery that you'd install in your garage, or your basement. It's cool, but it only it only give you at best a few days of power in the average size house. You know, we I'd like to see something that will last a week. Two weeks would be amazing, um, but right now you'd have to just pile in more and more batteries into your house. So what? What can we do? So researchers in Sweden are claiming that they've come up with a really brilliant solution for this. They've developed a solar thermal fuel. So what is this? What it's, it sounds 
really cool. I, when I read the headline, I'm like, all right, man, let me let me see what they got. Well, it, it, it sounds almost too good to be true. But what is it? Well, it's a molecule that includes carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. And when sunlight hits it, these molecules, the bonds between the molecules will rearrange themselves. And what happens is it's turned into something called an isomer. And in chemistry, an isomer represents a different arrangement of the same atoms that makes the molecule have different properties. So it transforms into this isomer, and that isomer's new properties are that it can store energy inside of the molecular bonds. So this particular isomer is called a photoresponsive molecule. Energy from the sun collects between the isomer's chemical bonds. So energy from the sun is collected between the isomer's chemical bonds. That energy will stay there even if the liquid is at room temperature. And now, of course, we have to be able to extract the energy once it's been put into the liquid. So the scientists are saying that in order to release the energy, the fluid needs to be drawn through a catalyst. Now, this is the part I could find nothing on. What's the catalyst? How does it exactly work? You know, that's where I feel like there's a little bit of a black box going on. So this returns, what they're saying is this returns the molecule back to its original form and releases the energy in the form of heat. And the scientists are saying that the energy process will store energy for it could, like, somewhat, for some reason they picked 18 years are saying that it would be a viable source of energy for 18 years. And they've tested the molecule and cycled it over 125 times, meaning that they've put energy into it and pulled it out and, it, and it, there was very minimal uh, degradation yeah, in the molecule. That's nothing – you got to, you know, it's only – do it thousands of times. Exactly. That was, that's yeah. a big flag that went out for me. Yeah. So there, I have some names here. The original molecule's name is norbornidine. And the heat-trapped isomer is called quadricalane. Uh, quadric- what is that? Quadricalane. <laughs> it's quadricalane. Quadricycline. It's wheat. So what? Quadricycline. Yes. Oh, is it CYC? Yep. Yeah, CYC. Right. Yeah, quadricycline. But I, I swear to God, as I'm, when I read the article, I'm like, why did they just call it quadricidicale or whatever from Star Trek? That would have been so cool. Trademark Gene Roddenberry. The uh, researchers say that they've made a lot of progress uh, in the recent months and that the current version of the fluid can hold 250 watt hours of energy per kilogram, which is double the energy capacity of Tesla's Powerwall batteries. Double. double. What do you double. guys think? This thing sounds double. amazing. I it's like energy double. density is what you mean, Jay. Energy density, not capacity. Uh, no, it says here in the article, say in the, article the energy capacity. capacity of Tesla's Powerwall. Uh, yeah. But that that makes no sense because capacity – you could just make it twice as right. big and you you're have right. twice the capacity. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's you're energy right. – it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, they're talking that's about – they're, they're talking about per kilogram, that's, and that's energy density. Yeah. That makes sense. So what Wait, is it about sense. this, Steve, that you don't like? So, all right, so this is, this is not new for – again, right? This is called – uh, molecular Solar Thermal Energy Storage, or MOST, most is the acronym, right? So th- this is just the, another type of this approach to storing solar energy for later use, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. It's an interesting approach. What I have not seen any measure of, and I'm actually reading through the original article, and it's not in the abstract, so I, I probably have to read all the, read much deeper into it, is what is the efficiency Right. So how much of the energy do you actually get back? Yeah. And I'm sure it decreases over time. Yeah, they say critical. you could store it up to a month, but with what efficiency? 18 years, right? Steve. They said 18 years. I'm reading the article, you know, where that they, was obviously hasn't been tested out. They've only tested it out a month. They may be extrapolating. Oh, I got you. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. Is like how if much the is, efficiency what, is too low, then who then who cares? Yeah, right? the energy cost of just running the system 
if it's happening all the time, that's the thing. Like do you, you know, the, the process is this. To, to describe it to you very quickly, the liquid would be pumped, say, to the roof of your house where it's exposed through pipes to the, the uh, sun, right? The radiation from the sun hits it, heats up the liquid. The liquid comes back down into a container. And it now mm-hmm. it's it's turned into the isomer and it's stored. It has it's supposed to be storing the energy at that point, and it's supposed to be very stable, right? This thing can't explode. It can't catch on fire. It can cool down to room temperature. The energy is just stored in there, kind of like in a sense when you think of like gasoline, right? Gasoline, you know, petroleum products are amazing at storing energy. They're they're energy dense, and that's why we we use them for everything, and we have tons of versions of it. But this thing. There's nothing in here about saying that the uh, molecule is flammable, which would be a mm-hmm. huge improvement over petroleum products. There's no, it's completely green. So the process of creating it, of using it to collect energy and reclaiming energy produces no, nothing. There's no, no carbon release? Nothing, Evan. They say nothing. It's completely clean. Yeah. It says the T half-life is 30 days at 25 degrees C. So at basically room temperature – the half-life of the energy is 30 days. So at 30 days, you've lost half the energy. So I don't see how they're saying 18 years. That's ridiculous. Also, in the actual article itself, not this press release crap, they, they say they've tested it. It withstood 43 storage and release cycles with 0.14% degradation per cycle. That's actually mm. a lot. Yep. Yeah. You know. So this off. is not the kind of thing where – right? if you're using this every day, if you're storing up your solar energy during the day and releasing it at night – that's 365 cycles a year. 43 cycles is nothing. There's a lot of details. Again, with all these energy news items, it always comes down to you need to know every last detail because any one detail is a deal killer. And you also need to know to have, you need to be able to compare it in all of those numbers to all the alternatives. So this is one way of storing solar energy. Another way that that people are looking at is uh, heating up salts, salts that just absorb a lot of heat, and then they hold on to it for a long time, and then they can release it slowly over time. And then you can use that to turn a turbine to generate electricity or just to to heat your house if it's in the winter, for example. And then also the, the other avenue of research is using solar energy to release hydrogen from water, for example. And then you store the hydrogen gas and you burn it later as a, a fuel cell. So, And that's actually probably the most efficient. Yeah. So unless you're getting up to hydrogen level efficiencies, who cares? Why would we use this system? Yep. Well, you know? unless it had the potential well, to, to to go beyond hydrogen, if that's if that's you know warranted. Well, yeah, we don't know what the future is. You know, they, they make or if it's cheaper. What's right. the advantage? What's no, wait, it, there's how, one more thing though that you. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure you didn't find that I found, Steve. That they said it also makes a delicious dessert topping. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. That's a horse no, no, of a different color. Jay, Jay, you're right. Steve did not find that. <laughs> I did not find that. Well, so the, the thing I like about this, I don't like the hype if it is hype. It, it, and this is the part that bothers me because you read these items. You could even read the abstract and you're still like, eh, I'm not sure. You know, Usually the abstract gives you a lot more information and sharpens everything up. But I, I'm still not sure about it. It seems almost too good to be true. It doesn't seem too good to be true, just that the, we're not given the details to know if it is good or not. They're just describing another way of storing solar energy right. for later use. That's great. And some of the features are reasonable, but this is no, just does not seem anywhere near prime time. And we would need to see a, a comparison with other seemingly better methods. Right. Like, and lack like of details, hydrogen. lack of details makes you 
more skeptical. Yeah, because if the details were good, they would be telling us, right? Right. But I like the concept is interesting. We need to we need to keep exploring exactly. these other yeah. concepts. Yeah, the ideas. We don't, you never know which one's going to hit, right? Which one's going to have the features that's like, hey, this is commercially viable. We could do this. Well, you and they're know? not going to give all the details, are they? I mean, because the idea is that they're going to want to patent this. They're going to want to be able to make this the thing that they sell. They can't give their well. They basic. should give the they should give the the functional parameters. They don't have to tell us how they're doing it. But I want to yeah. know like what how much of that energy am I getting back? That's pretty basic, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, exactly. And they don't have to explain that, how lithium ion batteries are great for in terms of efficiency. They're very efficient, all things considered. So yeah, we just need to get them smaller. Yeah. yeah, you know, Eventually, and that, it, yeah. that's something I thought about too. Like, because they did say that this technology is probably a decade away, which is it's in that super super gray zone. You know, yeah. five years is still too long for for my. They're case. saying ten years, which means it could easily be ten or 20. fifteen or twenty. And and if we have the same level of ink, so they're competing with lithium ion batteries ten years from now. Yeah, yeah that's what that yeah. was going to be my point. I mean, point. If we have lithium ion. We have decent storage. It's not great, but we have some now. And it's getting incrementally better every yep. year. That's and you right. can buy it today. Yeah. You know? right. Bob, could you imagine jumping a hundred years into the future and seeing what the battery technology is going to be like in a hundred years? I, oh, I think man. about that every day. <laughs> so Bob, are they going to be nano quantum batteries? <laughs> I like they probably that will convention. be. <laughs> they probably will be. Bob, you you have a similar item where, again, we're being (laughs) told about this technological advance, but the devil is in the details. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about this. The care of the material science has piqued my interest again. (laughs) So so this is a chair, Kara. This time, it's about a way to engineer what's being called metallic wood that's as strong as titanium, but has the density of water. Uh, now, this Whoa. was uh, a study published in Nature Scientific Reports. Uh, researchers at University of Pennsylvania School of Engineering and Applied Science and University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the University of Cambridge. Okay, that's all done. So is it wood or is it metal? <laughs> it's just, this is metal uh, with wood properties. Uh, Wait, I thought you said it was metallicized wood. Yes, it's called metallic wood. That makes wood. it sound like it's wood it's with metal properties. wood. But it's 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 a metal. It's a metal with wood properties. Okay. In that, is it woodified metal or metallicized wood? It's a woodified metal. There okay. you go. So, uh, <laughs> so it's it's wood like in that it's porous. It's got empty spaces surrounded by these nanoscale struts. Uh, it's in, and it self assembles, which is kind of biological in 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 a way. But it's made that way to, in part to overcome a limitation with modern materials that is not. I don't think it's generally appreciated. Titanium, for example, is an incredibly useful metal. It's it's strong like some, Steve, some steels, but half its weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, that gives it a strength-to-weight ratio that's unmatched. Uh, it's, it's really got an amazing strength-to-weight ratio, uh, but, but perhaps – uh, not for not for long. Uh, one of the biggest strength limitations now is it's a simple atomic scale imperfections. Uh, e- you know, even the most perfectly manufactured pieces of modern metal have misalignments, um, and and those misalignments, uh, even at the atomic scale, limit its strength. Uh, the claim that I read in this in this article was that if we could somehow uh, create a block of titanium with none of those imperfections, where all the molecules and atoms line up perfectly, and perhaps even the, the grains of the metal as well, it could actually be something like 10 times stronger, an order of magnitude. Uh, that's the claim. Uh, and that would be a, a game changer for many industries. I mean, can you imagine titanium 10 times stronger uh, than it already is and being light? I mean, that would that would certainly surpass uh, probably any type of steel. Um, Here we go, Iron Man, right? Although Iron you Man, could probably stuff. apply that technique to steel, and steel probably would recapture it. 
So that we, so we don't have that level of uh, nanoscale control yet. But the tactic described in this new news item tries to reduce the impact of, of these those imperfections by by reaping the benefits of precise nanoscale architecturing. Is that a word, Kara? I like it. Architecture. Sure. So I like it too. It's this specific architecture of nanoscale scaffolding and voids that combines to, to create this immense strength and, and lightness that they seem to have created uh, with this sample that, that, that they made. So how do you even build something like that? And how is it self-assemble? Well, the idea is they start with these tiny plastic spheres. I'm not sure how tiny they are. I think they'd have to be very, very tiny. And they, they mix them in water and the water slowly evaporates. So when the water slowly disappears... The spheres slowly settle into this orderly structure, kind of like uh, stacked pirate cannonballs. Um, of course, I had to throw <laughs> pirate in there, uh, kind of irre- uh, you know irrelevant. But pirate cannonballs. <laughs> imagine stacked pirate cannonballs. That's what that's what uh, we have there. So then they take these stacked structures and they electroplate them with nickel. After after the electroplating, the spheres themselves are dissolved with a solvent. So if you can picture that, it's it's oh, electroplated, yeah, yeah. and then the spheres are dissolved. And what you have is all the spaces in between all the the, the spheres are are these struts, and the dissolved spheres are the voids. Mm-hmm. And so that's so that's that's kind of the structure that they created. Why are they calling this wood? <laughs> I'm still it's, so no, confused. No, it's just wood like. It's wood like in its structure. It's wood like in metal. its biological structure. So and, it's metal that's made to be have a wood like structure. Because, but how is this any more wood like than some of those? You know, those like metal foams. It's a metaphor that are like no, the I'll light. Tell you, I don't actually, like it. I'll, it's I'll an tell you. Perfect metaphor. I'll tell you. Okay. Let, let me close out this thought, and then actually I'll segue into. What makes it even more wood-like? So, uh, okay. so the, the the technique is the real breakthrough here. Actually, it's it's not like they they recently said, "Oh, let's try this." They, they, we've known for years that structures like this at the nanoscale would be amazingly strong and light at the, at the same time. But we could only make these f- like flea-sized samples, very very tiny. So this new method can make samples four hundred times bigger, uh, which they say is about uh, the size of a square centimeter. Is that four hundred times bigger than a flea? I'm not sure about that. But, um, but such a sample, <laughs> be in volume. such a sample, there's, well, there's not much volume here. It's just, just a square centimeter, not, not a cubic centimeter or anything. But, um, but oh, such okay. a sample is 70% air and contains about a billion struts. So imagine the surface area wow. of one side of a die. And that's got, it's, that's mostly air, kind of like, like, it's like, kind of like air, reminds me of aerogel a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's got, that's a, what I'm it's thinking. got a billion struts. So, but here's another benefit that was really intriguing. And but because it's um it's not only that this material is as strong as, as titanium and four to five times lighter that unto itself it would be an amazing feat if they could get some uh, manufacturing scales up with this and make it and make it big and and it works I mean can you imagine uh something that's as strong as titanium but twenty percent uh the weight amazing uh, but it's the void themselves that are kind of the other side of the coin here you could they could actually use those voids. Uh, like wood uses the voids in the wood because wood is the same, a similar design. You've got these dense structures that make the cellulose and the, and the wood very strong, but you also have these voids. And what does, what does the wood do with the void? Uh, the voids, it transports uh, materials that it, that it needs, whatever energy is transported through these voids. And they could do a similar thing with this uh, metal 
potentially. So, so imagine you've got this, this strong strut of, uh, of, of titanium with these voids and you put an anode and cathode, cathode materials in it and then you could turn it into a battery. So imagine if you're, mm-hmm. if your leg, you have a prosthetic leg that's made of that. The entire leg could be a battery or, or a machine part and it could, could be, uh, a battery itself. So you can, you can add this other layer of, uh, of biological like, uh, attributes to this material that's that was that used to be just a just a dumb metal so that's kind of what they're going for that's kind of what this research you know seems to make a little bit promising here so in the future what they would do is they would try to make this commercially viable they'd try to make these even bigger but the big thing they really need to do first i think is to answer they need to answer some fundamental questions like what happens when you hit this material with a hammer will it dent like a metal does or would it shatter like a like a piece of dropped glass or bob Uh, will it will it Send the energy, the exact amount of energy back at you like Captain America's shield. You know? Right. <laughs> right. You never know. You don't know. You can't really test this tiny little square centimeter and do a real thorough testing with it. You need something that's you a little bit bigger. You know what it probably that's what won't do, do, Bob? What's that? Splinter like wood. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and, uh, and the other, the other thing that they're, that they need, that they're going to focus on, and they, they are, is so trying to explore other ways that other materials can be integrated into these voids for various novel possibilities. So yeah, this looks interesting. Uh, you know, they're still, they're just getting going with this. They only have a small sample, but it is a big improvement from what has been done in the past. And if this type, if this type of thing does pan out, could be, it could do some amazing things for material science. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, again, this study is an increment. Mental yeah. advance in one avenue of research in this. But the bigger idea here, which we've seen a lot of little studies like this, is again sort of redesigning materials at the nano exactly. scale. Exactly. With this kind of feature, you know, having this mm-hmm. porous kind of feature. And it does create this the potential for really strong, really light materials. If we do get cross over that line where it's commercially viable, it's always a big if. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, making planes and rockets and stuff out of this material could be a huge advance. Oh boy. Yeah. And that would, yeah. and that would be, I mean, say this pans out, uh, as, as they really hope, where you, you would have a metal that's 20% the weight of tit- titanium and as strong as titanium and this novel ability of suffusing material within its structure, within the voids to give it other battery-like attributes or who knows what else attributes mm-hmm. that, I mean, I would argue that that's not an incremental advance in, in material science. That's, that's a, you know, maybe a couple notches or three notches of an Yeah, if they get all the way across the finish right, line, Bob, right. then collectively, of course. And that's a big if. And I'm sure that's a big if. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Bob. All right, Kara, you're going to tell us about the discovery of the oldest Earth rock on the moon. What? Right? Look, I'm doing a space story, so help me. <laughs> I know. I could have just, <laughs> this is great. You sent me this as a possibility. Right, universe, yeah, Kara's, doing, Kara's doing the astronomy. This is bizarro, one. Kara. All right. So <laughs> this was published. Oh, it was preprinted because it says the publication date is going to be March 15th, 2019 in Earth and Planetary Science Letters. Terrestrial-like zircon in a clast from an Apollo 14 breccia. I looked up how to pronounce that. Go me. But basically, this article that was um, preprinted on Thursday of this week claims that one of the rocks that was collected from the Apollo 14 landing site, actually by Alan Shepard on February 16th, or sorry, February 6th, 1971, potentially actually came from Earth. And not just that, if this does pan out to be an Earth rock that ended up on the moon, it is the oldest rock ever discovered. It dates back to more than 4.011 billion years. 
Um, so there are places on Earth that have quite old rocks. Um, 4.4 billion years are where Australia's Jack Hills are dated to. But A, the dates are kind of in question. Um, the, the science doesn't seem to be completely settled on that. But B, it's really just like chopped up minerals. So the, it's debris from rocks. There's no whole rocks there. And so it's more about testing the little tiny particles that led to scientists to date them to be that old. But the rock that was brought back from the moon is, I think, 20 pounds. It's a big chunk of rock. And it uh, is the size of a basketball. So this is like, I mean, this is a premier moon rock. Um, there's a really cool picture in the National Geographic geographic coverage of some scientists, I'm assuming from the 70s. It's a black and white picture. It'd be funny if it was actually a modern picture, but their caps look kind of old. They don't look like they had a lot of... I yeah, love this black. picture. It's three female scientists mm -hmm. looking at this rock. Yeah. That's so cool. Looking with those glove thingies because it's inside of like a closed off um, vent hood. Oh, that's awesome. And so they've got the gloves in there and they're looking at it. It's really cool. And it shows you just like the heft of this rock. The rock has a name. One four three two, uh, yeah. One four three two one. Beautiful, lovely name. It rolls off the tongue. Yeah, has a personalized license plate too. Absolutely. <laughs> and so here's basically what happened. The researchers. This is such a cool thing about science is that even findings, you know, data collected decades ago, is still being actively understood, right? We see this all the time in paleontology, where there will be something that's published about a specimen that was collected 70 years ago or 40 years ago. And this is no different. So Apollo 14, which landed, do you guys know where Apollo 14 landed? On the moon. On the moon. Well, yeah, but do you know the name of the crater? Um, the crater? On the, on the near uh, side. Uh, it did land on the near side. That's true. Apollo 14 landed in the site that Apollo 13 was supposed Im to land. Imbrium Basin. Yeah, Imbrium Basin. Basin. Thank you. Um, and so we all remember Apollo 13. Oh, yes. Good I mean, I don't never remember made, it from well, when it happened, yeah, but I remember it, it from the, the movie. Houston yeah, never, never landed on the moon, right? Houston, they had a problem. Um, Apollo 14 actually went to the original site that Apollo 13 was supposed to go to, and it was crewed by Alan Shepard, who was the commander, and he's actually the one who, A, picked up this rock, and B, I don't know if you guys remember, like, swung a golf club. Like, yep. he, like, hit a golf ball on the oh, moon. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Or two of them, actually, at the end of his EVA. And then also Stuart Rusa and Edgar Mitchell. And so this, mo uh, this moon rock, thought to be moon rock, was collected, you know, put into storage or on display. People have researched it. They've studied it. And this group of scientists, led by J.J. Bellucci and his colleagues, actually decided to look at this moon in a little bit more detail. And they realized that this moon... Moon I'm sorry, this moon rock had clasts, right, which are just like fragments within the rock, and some were dark and some were bright. And they were like, okay, let's look at this bright portion of the rock. It seems to be rich in something called zircon, which is like a good way to look at old, old stuff. Like zircon is a, it's a, an element that's formed in these really old areas. And what they realized is that these properties of the rock were weird for the moon. Like it could have been formed on the moon. Nobody is saying that it, that there's no chance it would have been formed on the moon, but it would have had to be formed in a part of the moon that was really high in water content and really deep inside of the, uh, the magma. And it would have had to be very, very old. We know that because we, we looked at the date of it. They started to compare it 
to different Earth regions, and they realize that it's actually much, much, much more likely that this thing was formed on Earth and then during an impact shot its way to the moon, Mm -hmm. which is amazing, you guys. This is really cool. And so the thing is, sure, if this turns out to be true, you know, they are hypothesizing that a lot. Well, first of all, a bunch of scientists and researchers, geologists are going to be like, okay, we need to see if we can study all these different properties, all these different compounds and and decide whether or not we think that this is likely. And then after that, probably people are going to start looking at all the moon rocks that we've collected and hopefully collecting new samples because there's only so many samples. But of course, now China may be collecting some samples and collecting samples from a part of the moon we've never visited, which is really cool. And it may be the case that we start seeing evidence from the early solar system on the moon, not just Earth. I mean, they hypothesize that we might see some Mars evidence or even some potentially Mercury evidence on the moon, which is very, very cool. Oh, there it is. Imbrium Crater. (laughs) They called it. Oh, no, this is. Yeah, yeah. the impact. Oh, this is a whole other thing. This is actually kind of interesting. And I got my wires crossed um, on this, Steve. So they think that the impact that made Imbrium Crater on the near side of the moon likely forged this rock and flung it to the landing site. Mm -hmm. So first, the rock was potentially placed on or made in Earth, mm-hmm. flung to the moon, and then flung over to the landing site because of another impact. Because mm. the moon is, like, beat up. Oh, it's oh, yeah. hot sure. It's taken a punch It's, like, really beat up. And billions of years. Earth is pretty beat up, too. Yeah, yeah. I've seen and, the models of you strip away all the stuff on Earth, and you look at it, it's a pocked up mess as well. Totally. And there's no reason that, you know, we th- nobody can test the fact that there's probably material that has passed between the two because of these intense collisions, right? But the question is, how random and how cool is it that this one rock that everybody thought was just moon material might have actually been forged on Earth? And what's even more remarkable is that a human being traveled there and picked it up among the, among the samples yeah. everywhere. And that happened to be one of the samples that he that he. Picked how did up. that even happen? I mean, how much Earth rock is on the moon? That's a very good well, that's question. The, that's the question. It would suggest there's a lot. Yeah, right? it would suggest there's a lot because that's pretty random. And the thing is, you know, again, the 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 chemistry here is really complicated. But just the pressure that would have been required, the temperature that would have re- been required, and the oxid oxidation environment that would have been required to make this rock on the moon isn't known on the moon. It would have to be kind of a new, we would have to have a new concept of how some of that geology was forged deep, deep inside of the moon, but it's much more understood on Earth. Now, that could be one of two things. That could be an unknown unknown, right? It could be that it's just we can't study the moon to the extent that we can study the Earth because we're not there. And once we understand the moon better we find all sorts of sites where this could have been made on the moon but as of what we know right now it just seems more likely according to these researchers that it was made here and that it ended up there which is like pretty amazing that that's more likely because it seems fantastic that would have been flung from the earth to the moon but maybe it was actually pretty common and you can't overstate the irony here that you had to go to mm-hmm. the moon to find the oldest earth <laughs> rock it's just I know. delicious <laughs> so right? it's crazy it's really cool. Yeah, well, I, mean, I love the, this story. The inner planets are trading material all the time, you know, on a yeah. million billions of years time scale. Mm-hmm. So, and we're talking four billion years old. There's plenty. Like, we there's plenty of 
Mars meteorites and moon meteorites on Earth. You know, a lot of the stuff we find, you know, we found oh. Mars rocks on Earth. It's not, yeah, most not of what common. we knew before we started going there about the moon and Mars was from these Earth meteorites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Black Beauty is a really cool Mars one that has old um, evidence of water in it. I mean, it's really amazing. Think about this, though. You know, because there isn't a lot of or super, super tiny amount of geology happening on the moon, meaning, you know, there isn't a lot of like, you know, erosion and stuff like that happening that a rock that old could survive and be relatively pristine compared to what? On, on Earth, you know, the surface of the Earth is in constant change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the fact that it could have just been sitting there literally since the time of that Imbrium impact. Yeah. Like that's – it could have been flung and just like hung out there for like millions of years. Yeah, but the thing <laughs> – that, that it was above the regolith layer though I think is also kind of remarkable. You'd think that after so many years, this thing would have been long buried and – well, no, that's just it. No, it's a moon. It's a moon. There's no, there's no erosion. There's no weathering. There's none of that. So it's pristine. That's no moon. It just hangs. <laughs> just, yeah, it yeah. just hangs out there. But even, which is, but even if you are having other impacts and things, it must kick up the regolith at some point. It comes landing back down to the surface of the moon, and over the course oh, of billions of years, you would think that that a sediment layer would have developed sort of over these from but, uh, from other impacts. From other from impacts. impacts. That's, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. It is pretty cool that it's just fine. sitting there. Yeah. And guys, there is a photo that Alan Shepard took of the rock before he picked it up. So we can see the rock in situ. <laughs> and then now sort we of. have it here on Earth, which is really it just the um, what do they call that in? They didn't, they didn't take a picture of it in place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you said. Stop well, it. Um, but what do they call that in uh, like when you're collecting antiques? Oh, provenance. Provenance. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's just so neat to see that photograph of the moon and to see the rock there. And his uh, and, and his boots um, impressions as well. Yeah, you can among, see those too. That's so cool. Um, so just to clarify, the landing site of Apollo 14 is called the Fra Mauro Formation, and it is approximately 500 kilometers from the edge of the Imbrium Basin. So they're saying okay. that this rock came from the Imbrium Basin and was flung 500 kilometers mm-hmm. to the Fra Mauro Formation. Yeah, they think it's more it likely that – yeah, that yeah. it was there first um, and – because of the type of rock, the breccia, that's, yeah. uh, they said, a sort of stony collage pieced together from bits of many different older rocks. And I guess the question is that if it were actually formed on the moon, which again is possible, but they think not likely, it would have had to be so deep in the the center of the moon because it just the, the uh, chemical environment that would have been necessary to form these portions of the rock, that it would never have ended up on the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the weird part. It's like, how did it get where it got? All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Kara, you did fine. Thank no, you. That was great. Good job, Kara. Uh, yeah, I, I was entertained. <laughs> great job, Kara. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. All right. Last week, I played this noisy. <laughs> Now, you can imagine, I got a lot of, a lot of responses <laughs> you, to this. I know, it kind of does. It kind of does. Jay, do Bob. it. Do it. Recreate it. Uh, 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 oh, yeah, that's uh. Jay. Yeah. All right, so many people guessed a rubber chicken. That's incorrect. It is not, <laughs> it is not a rubber chicken. <laughs> the rubber chicken. But it's, 
I had lots of guesses. Oh my God, so many. I can't get to all of them. Steve's even like, oh, you can come on. You got to keep the. How many p- guesses are you going to read, Jay? Well, Two I'm wrong read- and one correct. Right, here we go. <laughs> Very quickly, let me cruise through these. Zan Newberger said, Hello, Skeptics Guide. Crew, particularly Jay, I'd say this week's noisy sounds most like some newer models of electronic larynxes, which allow for a pitch change. Oh. Yeah, this is cool. Great guess. It was a great guess. I've, I've listened to some of these fake larynx, larynxes that they've made, you know, like making this, the vowel sounds with these rubber throats and, and stuff like that. Um, that's not correct, but I really thought that was a cool guess. Another listener named Nathan said, gang, every week I listen to your show. With uh, my 10-year-old daughter, she loves Who's That Noisy and participating in science or fiction. She is convinced Aww. the noisy this week is a dog toy. <laughs> so we'd like to all say hi to you, Scarlett. Um, we're excited to hear that you're enjoying the show with your dad. Like I said, she's 10 years old, guys, and she's playing I'm Who's wow. That Noisy cool. and science or fiction. Yeah, that's great. Scarlett, you're wrong, but it's a great guess. Because it really does sound like a squeaky toy or a rubber chicken. It does. It, <laughs> I, and I knew that when I first heard it. So you, you actually guessed what a lot of people guessed. And then for, this one's for Bob, and this is the last funny guess. Uh, Alex wrote in and said, this sounds like Skynet's evil laugh just, just after it sent the Terminator back in time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so nobody guessed it. Nobody guessed it. Oh, wow. Yeah, check this out. So – I'll remind you that listener named Justice Smith uh, sent this in, and they said he or she said, here's a weird sounding noisy. That's the sound of a brain having a seizure. How Stanford, do they... Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. continues to write, Stanford Research. you got to give me a minute here, Karen. I'm like, but, but, but I have what to What happened to brain? It's a brain. Stanford researchers have developed a brain stethoscope that can help detect non-convulsive epileptic seizures. By converting brain waves into sound, even non-specialists can detect silent seizures, epileptic seizures without the convulsions most of us expect. So untrained medical students went from having a no better than zero chance, meaning, you know, better just as much as guessing, all the way to a 97% accuracy with this method because it, it turns it into a sound that's recognizable and people could recognize a sound very easily. Cool. So that that idea of turning uh, the EEG into sound is not new. I did that during my fellowship. It's a very old technology, actually. I did that for a year. I would sit for hours listening to EEGs, taking out seizures. Steve, you should patent it as new and and explain it to the world that it's the latest, greatest thing. And you invented it. That's right. But so it didn't sound like that at all. I mean, seizures, like, you know, seizures, it all depends on how the – the EEG waves are being translated into sound. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Different. It's like the gravitational wave, like the boop. Yeah. If they had used a different technique, set different. It would sound different. Yeah. yeah exactly. Totally. But and it's obviously designed to so that it's easy to pick out. It's like we would do. That's how we would read twenty-four hour EEG. So I would listen to twenty-four hours in like an hour. Mm-hmm. So like at 24 times speed or something like that. And then see, so, oh, cool uh, yeah, so the seat, so, and then the seizures are really easy to hear because they just, they, they come out of the background. It's just like noise and then zip, you know, okay, that was yep. a seizure. Yeah. So do you think they made this sound, you know, they, funny yeah, they, deliberately? Yeah. They, well, they made it, re- easy, they deliberately made it recognizable. Yeah, so it, it would obvious. come out of the background. So yeah, so okay. you could listen to a long, you know, series of EEG and say, you have to listen to 24 hours or, more, more. I mean, yeah. I doubt they made it 
funny intentionally. Yeah. I don't know it because was, that is awfully funny. You know, that there's something very comical I, about it. Look, like again, it's a serious thing, but they want to pick something that someone can easily identify and a silly yeah, noise is easy point. to identify. Sure. Mm-hmm. I have a new noisy guys, so let's, let's move on. Dan Green sent in I, one of probably my favorite noises, so easily this year, maybe maybe in my top 10 because of the whole story behind it, but you got to hear this. Wait, easily this year? There's been like three. Well, that's why I said it's easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a really good one. Check this out. And I can make that noise exactly. I can make that. I already tried. I can totally do that. I mean, anybody can do it. I know anybody can do it. It's someone reading the legal disclaimer of an ad. No, 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 it's not the micro machines guy. If that is a talking seal or walrus. Or sea lion. I'm going to lose it. It's a water bear. It, <laughs> it's so it is. It is something making noise that you have oh, to guess. Wow. That's the game, Kara. So, <laughs> I don't like it. I, it's oh a God, critter? It's so, it's so good. I can't wait until next week. because I think it's the, a critter. Steve, I'm going to have to have an extra long Who's That Noisy next week. All right. Because All right, this, is, this is a good one. <laughs> this is a fun one, man. So please – Try to guess what the heck that is. And if you heard something funny or cool like that and you want to send it to me for it to be premiered on the show or at least try because, you know, I am very critical on what I put on the show, you email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thanks, Jay. Okay, we have a name out logical fallacy this week. This is interesting. I don't think he gave me permission to say his name, so let's read the email. I am a physical therapist with a brother-in-law who is a chiropractor. Recently, he asked me my thoughts on cupping. I replied that I thought it was mostly BS or at the very least claims are unsubstantiated. I then linked to Steve's science-based medicine blog post of the topic and he responded with, author sounds like he is being paid to write that, but mostly agree with what he says. Got to remember, science is often behind what practitioners know. That sounded like a hit piece. Mm. So Wait, what? He just made like, I, I a bunch understand. of good arguments yeah. and then said, I don't, it was a hit piece. He believes yeah. most of what he said. Science is behind what physicians know. Yeah. So in other words, he can't actually disagree with any of my facts, <laughs> but he still doesn't like what I said. So he okay. had to come up with some way to dismiss my overall conclusions, but he can't really disagree with my, you know, the, the, the references that I gave and the arguments that I used. So he's saying you're a shill. Basically, he's playing the shill card, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what logical so that fallacy? fallacy is that? What is that? I mean, you, it's, again, there's a lumper splitter thing. Do you want to call this playing the shill card a fallacy? But what, is there any you know more generic type of fallacy that you think that would be? There's actually something called the shill gambit. Yeah, I know. It's, it's the shill gambit. Absolutely. Yeah, an, oh, there you go. It's an ad hominem. But how do we – yeah, it's an ad hominem. That's mm-hmm. right. So he's yeah. trying to say – trying trying to attack me as be, in this case as being a shill rather oh, interesting. than – because he can't he agrees I agree with what he says, but yeah, he sounds like a shell to me, you know. So um and also that sounded like a hit piece is again sort of you're arguing against some subjective feeling rather than anything mm-hmm. objective. So there's also something called subjective validation, which oh. is which is more of a bias than a logical fallacy, but subjective validation, which is really common, is when you use subjective judgments 
to validate what you already believe. So it's a form of confirmation bias, but there's mm. another layer in that mm. you're not just picking facts, you are interpreting things in a certain subjective way that fits your narrative, right? So saying this sounds like a hit piece, what does a, what does a hit piece sound like? Mm. You're, you could say that about anything you yeah. don't like. Of course. You know, it's just completely subjective. Or it sounds like he's being paid to write that. What does that sound like? It sounds like I disagree with the conclusions. Yeah, it sounds like I don't like it. Although he said he agrees with most everything you said, which is really weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rational Wiki also puts the shill gambit as a um, – they call it an ad hominem and they say it's poisoning the well. Yeah, I was thinking of poisoning the well. But I tend to use poisoning the well when you're stating something that's true. But uh, that, but that is um, meant to – uh, to well. bias you against what a person or an argument ever. It's like, oh, Hitler believed that. Well, Hitler may yeah. have believed that, <laughs> but it's irrelevant and you're just saying that to poison the well. Yeah, uh, I guess it's because when almost anytime somebody says you're a shill, there's a negative connotation to it. Oh, like yeah, big pharma or big ag or big so-and-so yeah. paid you off right? Right. and they're evil by definition. Yeah. You're a whore, right. basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And you're a whore something evil. I'll agree that there's poisoning the well-related activity there. Yeah. To me, to me, two-thirds of his response is entirely oh yeah yeah <laughs> at, at, at oh yes yeah. that should at totally best. be an informal logical fallacy <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> but then all right so what about the line in the middle where he says gotta remember science is often behind what practitioners know what that's, about that first of yeah. all that's hopefully yeah but also <laughs> unfortunately not always true <laughs> it's actually the opposite of the truth practitioners <laughs> are behind the science not the other way around wait that's science not true often sure it is behind. Oh, I see what you... Yeah, no, no, you scientists are usually doing biomedical science, and then physicians are usually learning from their findings in order to apply them to their study. I, I take physicians this, aren't scientists. I take this to mean science is, is, is the underpinnings of what practitioners know. Or, no. Yeah. No. That's how no, I'm interpreting I, you're, I'm interpreting it in a completely different way. Oh, I think he's saying that science lags behind what practitioners oh, know. like in time, Sci- oh. Yes. Hilarious. Not, not supportive as in supporting yeah. of no, no. Because he's saying, gotta remember, science is often behind what practi- like practitioners oh, are on the cutting right. edge. Like so what he should have said, they're temporarily yeah. behind. Science lags behind. Lags behind. Lags behind. Yeah, but it's actually the opposite. Is the true that practitioners Absolutely. are lagging behind the science? Because and he's also, viewing it from an Eastern perspective, oh, which is yeah, the common is, argument, is, right? Because right. these are chiropractors that science right. is still uncovering, right? Or that practitioners get clinical experience and then science has to validate the clinical yeah. experience but clinical experience is ma- clinical experience is massively uh, informed it's massively un- unreliable and misleading it's anecdotal right and right. we and again we anecdotal evidence is just a form of confirmation bias mm-hmm. it, you'll it'll support whatever it is you kind of already believe or want to believe which is usually a false positive and we need the science to tell us what actually works and mm-hmm. what you know so practitioner you know re- resorting to practitioner knowledge is just an appeal to anecdote yeah That's and even if you is. i mean think about it if there were no evidence right if yeah. no doctor if doctors had no evidence that they could turn to no literature or if yeah. psychologists physicians you know whoever had no evidence they wouldn't even know what to do 
We we don't have well, like, to imagine that, Kara. We had two thousand years of <laughs> yeah. that. That's bloodletting, right? That, that's, but even yeah. there, they tried to base it on some kind of pre-scientific it, evidence. It was they, no, it was it was philosophy based. It was yeah, not evidence based. So nobody wrote anything down and said it seemed to work with so and so. Maybe, yeah. but it was all so anecdotal. But again, it Just showed poorly, without yeah. once you, unless you're over that line of scientific evaluation if if you're doing pseudoscience right you maybe you're making observations you're doing provings right like with homeopathy or yeah. you're recording stuff but you're not doing an objective scientific blinded evaluation then you just drift off into fantasy land oh, you are sure. disconnected from reality and then you end up with all the shit that was going on for 2000 years before science based medicine where they would make diagnoses based on the shade of your pee or yeah. obsessively li- <laughs> obsessively feel your pulse and like massively overinterpret just the subtle variations in your pulse. It's ridiculous. It's and the way the clinicians work nonsense. now is you learn a whole lot before you ever see a patient. Yes. Like obviously. You should anyway. And then yeah. you get to start applying that knowledge. Right. right. <laughs> Duh. All right, guys. Well, let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Yay! The theme is ostracods. Boo! Do you guys know what ostracods are? Yeah, cods of fish and ostrids, uh, ostrich. Ostra, ostra. So, bird fish. Bone, bone, ost- bone, uh, bone no, fish. No, but that'd be ostocod, right? O S T R A C O D. Ostracod. 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 Outside of? O S T R A C O D. Okay, these are small crustaceans. I came across this in a news item, and I'm like, I have no idea what these things are. And it turns out they're very interesting. So I thought I would share some of what I learned about ostracods in science okay. fiction. Okay. All right. Here Let's they are. Ostracods, having survived from the Cambrian to modern times, are the single most common fossil in the fossil record. Item number two, ostracods have unusually large gametes with sperm 20 times bigger than human sperm and up to 16 times longer than the ostracods themselves. And item number three, some species of ostracods have bioluminescent saliva that was used by Japanese soldiers during World War II to read maps and correspondence. I love how you did a science or fiction about something that before right now, none of us even knew existed. Mm -hmm. That's that was the goal. (laughs) (laughs) So this is literally just darts at a dartboard. Achievement unlocked. Well done. Evan, go first. All right. They survived from the Cambrian to modern times, and they are the single most common fossil in the fossil record. Well, oh boy, I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. Now, the unusually large gametes, gametes, Mm -hmm. sperm is 20 times bigger than human sperm and up to 16 times longer than the ostracods themselves. Okay, wow, how is... uh, any, anything else like that in zoology or in in the biological world? And I'm trying to think of another example where where something else equates to these sorts of ratios, and I'm not really uh, not really 
thinking of anything <laughs> in that regard. So this one's really peculiar. The last one is this bioluminescent saliva used by Japanese soldiers during World War II to read maps and correspondence. Of the three, that seems the most likely. Um, I know that there are lots of creatures in the sea that have bioluminescent qualities, uh, whether it's saliva, tendrils, or what have you, so I'm not... I wouldn't be all that surprised. The question part of this one is, was it used by the Japanese soldiers during World War II uh, in some capacity? So I'll say yes to that one. And therefore, that leaves me with the first two. I see, I don't know that it's the single most common fossil. Wouldn't we have at some point spoken about it, heard about it, referenced it at some point? Because we talk about fossils in so many different capacities, and this has never come up, never once. So that one striking me is the more fiction-y of one and two. So I'll say that that one, the most common, single most common fossil is the fiction. Okay, Bob, let's start with three. Bioluminescent saliva actually doesn't sound like a bad idea. Um, you know, you could, if you want to attract your prey somewhere, you might as well attract them to your mouth. That's where, that's where you want them to end up. <laughs> to your mouth. <laughs> let's see. Yeah, so that kind of makes some kind of sense to me. Uh, although, would you see it? Would you see the bioluminescent saliva from through the skin? Unless you do, you have translucent skin. Would you have to spit it out a bit? So I'm kind of buying that one. The second one, the, the large gamete. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make any judgments about extra large gametes. Twenty times longer than uh, the ostracot itself is a, quite a feat. It could be like 16. curled up and stuff. Twenty times bigger than human sperm. Sixteen times yeah. longer than the ostracots. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess I can kind of see that. Yeah, the one I'm having trouble with is, is the first one there. That they survive from the Cambrian. Well, what's, what are you really saying anyway? I mean, so have we. I mean, one in one way or the other, we, we survived from you know our ancestors. We have a common ancestor in the Cambrian, don't we? No, I think he's um, saying there were ostracods in the Cambrian. Yeah, it wasn't. It yeah, was, there were ostracods in the like Cambrian. unchanged. Yeah, it was well, that. That's just it. I mean, it's unchanged. I mean, what I, I don't think. Well, not not unchanged, but oh, as okay. you know, obviously. Like, there are coelacanths around now, but they're not the same coelacanths that were around 100 million years ago. Right. But they're similar but, enough to be called the same species. But they're in the same, they're in the ostracod grouping. Phylum, it's, it's, kingdom, or what? Yeah, what it's, it? it's a class. But yeah, class. So the, class, okay. Yeah. So that class existed at the Cambrian. And there was not a human, anything close to an anthropod. There's not a, yeah. Back then. No, no. <laughs> Nothing close. Well, obviously, no, I, obviously I knew that, <laughs> but we, but there were no mammals in the Cambrian. That would be the equivalent. No. All, right. Yeah. All right, get to it. Gotcha. All right, so I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna say that the, I'm, if it's if it was if it were the most common fossil in the fossil record, I'd like to think I would have heard of that at least. But so based on that, mostly I'll, I'll say that that's fiction. Okay, Jay. Well, first I'd I'd like to say, man, the egos. You know, like everyone's like, oh, I, I would have heard of this. I mean, guys. Yeah. Science. The most common fossil in the fossil record, Jay. That's we we kind of we kind of are up on those kind of things. Well, well so that's, it's not unreasonable. I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure these creatures exist. Number one, we haven't heard of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know all three okay. would be fiction if they didn't and exist. Correct. <laughs> see, see my powers of deduction, Steve. All right, so let me get through this. <laughs> Subduction. Um, they, Steve says here, the ostracods have survived from the Cambrian to modern times. And they're the most common. All right. I mean, look, if they're super small, I, I could see if they're super common. Like they could be like uh, – I'm thinking like what? Like water bears? Like maybe they, they just have been around forever, largely unchanged unchanged, and they're, they're in all sorts of rocks and minerals and shit like that. That makes sense. So the second one here of usually large gametes with the sperm t- 20 times bigger than humans. All right. So what's the big deal about the sperm being 20 times bigger? You know how small sperm are? They're small. 
The one, the part of that that bothers me is that the sperm is actually longer than the ostracod itself. Ding ding ding. Which is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then some species of ostracods have bioluminescent saliva. Uh, Japanese soldiers in World War II read maps and correspondence. Yeah, that's the one that bothers me the most. Like I've never heard of bioluminescent saliva. But I don't know because the sperm being longer is weird too. All right. So here's why I don't think the Japanese soldiers use their saliva because because of information I may or may not have or can, can confirm. I just don't think that, that this would be something that was harvestable. So I'm going to say that one's the fake. Okay. And Kara? I feel like I've read a lot of like, holy gee, wow, top 10 lists in science mm-hmm. media. And, you know, we always hear about um, that have – why can't I think of it? Oh, my gosh. And they have the longest penises mm-hmm. of all organisms. You mean compared um, to the rest of their body size? Compared, yeah, yeah, yeah. Penis to body ratio. But now you're talking about sperm and you're saying not only is it actually larger than human sperm, but also it's ratioed much larger than the ostracods. But then again, Bob said it could be coiled up. But then again, if it was coiled up, it'd have to uncoil to be able to swim. And since they're marine organisms, I don't know if they actually mate, but they probably don't mate by having actual sex. They're simple organisms. They're from the Cambrian. They probably just release it into the water and hope. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Yeah. So maybe they should be really, really big to be able to swim. I don't know if these things even swim or if they're stuck to rocks or something. I don't know. I don't even know what they look like, but they're fossils. So they probably had shells. If they were going to fossilize, so they're probably stuck somewhere. So I think this one could be true. No, the sixteen. <laughs> it freaks me out that they're sixteen times longer than the ostracods when the ostracods themselves are probably really simple. And yes, <laughs> Karen, I think you're cracking me up. <laughs> I know I'm dying. Yes, yes, I think that mating is probably like the only point of these organisms' lives. But it still bothers me that they'd be sixteen times. That's huge. I think, but I don't know how big they are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm still going to go. I'm going to go out on my own because like we said at the beginning, this is a dartboard and I don't want Steve to sweep us. That's okay. Strategy. Strategery. There you go. That's teamwork. All right. Do it out of spite. You're going to pick up two. (laughs) Because I have no idea. Giant sperm. Giant sperm. All right. Well, good. We got a good spread. Uh, let me take these in reverse order. We'll start with number three. Some species <laughs> oh. of ostracods have bioluminescent uh, saliva that was used by Japanese soldiers during World War II to read maps and correspondence. Jay, you are alone in thinking this oh, one is man. the fiction. Last week you were alone, right? And, and, you and I lost. Yeah, but you didn't read his oh, first. I did win. You didn't read I his first. Yeah, week. you didn't read you his did. first, though. <laughs> and this week you're alone, and this one is... Science. So you do lose. The See sleep. how that all, all balances out. Yeah, they have uh, some of the species have bioluminescent saliva. This was the study that caught my interest. I'm like ostracod, what the hell is that? They're like, wow, these things are fascinating. I'm going to do a whole science fiction just <laughs> oh my on them. Gosh. <laughs> so they, it's not bacteria though, Kara. They actually it's have not? they have enzymes in their own saliva that mix together and form this beautiful blue color. No and way. scientists are studying it because it's the it's a, a rare example of bioluminescence entirely outside the body. So it's not like the fireflies where it's inside the body. And because of that, the ostracods have total control over it because it's something that they, they sort of mix up in their own mouths and spit out. They do spit it out. Um, oh. Yep, there you go. They And they use it for probably confusing predators and also for mating displays. Of course, well, it depends on the species. Confused me. Oh, funny. So, so Bob, it's not about drawing things to <laughs> <No>. their mouths. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of different 
kinds of ostracods. I've read a couple different numbers, somewhere between 8,000 and 13,000 extant species. Wow. And Uh something like 80,000 extinct species. That we know about. Yeah, that we know about. Those things fossilize? They're small. They, that they, sounds like a lot of fossils, you guys. They range from, what killed, stop, Kara. Stop species, it. Stop Steve? It. Was it global warming? Like, what it, did it? Just the normal background rate of, of uh, extinction. So yeah, the Cambrian was a long time ago. Oh, yeah. They range from 0.1 to 2 millimeters. Oh. So millimeters. Bob's familiar with that. About the size of a, like a seed, a tiny <laughs> seed. Mm-hmm. Well, sperm's to, way smaller than that. Up to like the size of a meatball. Oh, like right? those caraway seeds that um, get stuck in your teeth. I hate those. So, Steve, can I tell you why I'm familiar with these guys? Why? Because I'm pretty sure I saw a fossil of them when we were on our trip. To, yeah, uh, maybe. In that fossil store we went to out in yeah. uh, England. Remember? The, the no. Oh, is that when you guys in got Scotland. me the yes. it, my yes. um, meteorite Me- necklace? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your birthday yeah. present. Yeah. That's so cool. All right. Let's go to the – so anyway, so they, they uh, are little – crustaceans, they're mostly head, like the body's really small. Uh, and they, they're a bivalve. They do have a shell, it, and it hinges on the back. It, it's dorsally hinged, right? So along the back, mm. and it closes up in front of them. And their antenna stick out, and they actually swim with their antenna. I'm totally looking this up. This sounds like yeah, a weird cool. organism. All right, let's go to number two. Ostracods have unusually large gametes with sperm 20 times bigger than human sperm and up to 16 times longer than the ostracods themselves. That's obviously in some species. Oh, crap. Kara, <laughs> uh, you think this one is the fiction, and this one... She might have it. ...is... Science. Oh, yeah. 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 Hey, Bob. Bob, we, we made gone up. with Evan. Bob, we Bob made is, up for last week. Yeah. Bob is exactly correct that they are all curled up inside. Yeah. Now, also interesting, yeah. it's funny, Carrie, you mentioned the biggest penis relative to uh-huh. body size. The uh, a fossilized ostracod is a sample of the oldest fossil penis. Whoa. No. Nice. Neat. And some species of ostracods have two penises. Two penises, and the females have two. They're not called vagina, but they're, they're, they have two receptacles for their mm-hmm. males' two penises. So they don't just, they do have male and female parts there. I was thinking of barnacle. <laughs> that yeah, was the barnacle. word I was thinking of. Yeah, a barnacle okay. has the biggest, yeah, penis to body ratio. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the oldest penis. Uh, and also, I think they have some. They have some where they have. The, it's also the 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 best preserved fossilized gametes again because the gametes are so freaking large. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually have them preserved, like million year old gametes. Wow. All right, this means that ostracods, having survived from the Cambrian to modern times, are the single most common fossil in the fossil record. Is the fiction, but this you know I could have worded this in a way to make it science, but I had to make something the fiction. But um, they are the most common crustacean fossil in the fossil record, which, you know, is is still something. But I looked it up. I thought I I read that. Like, oh, I wonder if they're the most fossil overall, because that's totally plausible. There were, they say, so ostracod-like organisms in the Cambrian. It's still controversial whether or not you would classify them as ostracods. So that was a little bit iffy to say ostracods in the Cambrian. Some references say, do say that, but the, the more technical ones were clear that, yeah, they're just ostracod-like, uh, not necessarily ostracods, but they have survived you know, almost back to the Cambrian 
and to, and with ex, with thousands of extant species today. So that for that reason, they're common. They're also small. They also have shells. So there's a a lot of reasons why there's a lot of ostracod fossils. But I, in looking up the question, what's the most common fossil in the fossil record? Uh, I found that the snail turritella is the hmm. most common fossil in the fossil record. Turritella. Yeah. Again, it's a snail? tiny. It's a tiny snail. It and it and it has a shell. So. Oh, I have some of those. Yeah. I just looked it up. They're spirals. Yes, the spirals. Yeah, they like look little like little corkscrew. unicorn horns. Yeah. Exactly. That's the most common, apparently. Oh, yeah. I have a bunch of fossils that I collected off the side of the freeway in Texas. Um, and they were most of them were ammonites, sea stars, and these turritellas. And also yeah. the little, you know, the little round ones that almost look like beads? Oh, gosh. I'm Yeah, so they weren't the most common fossil all, uh, of all kind. But they are far more common than you think, which is probably, yeah, we should know that these things exist. You know, this is like a mm-hmm. huge amount of life. On Earth, these ostracods, and I, you know, if I've heard of them before, I forgot. And so, Bob, you're sending around this picture of these blue bioluminescent creatures in a in a wave washing up against the shore. Yeah. And yeah. I have seen that image before. So that was on planet Earth, or one other one of them. They mm. did show it. Oh, Steve. Yeah, it's a crinoid. Oh, a cr- those crinoid. are also very common. So and they're actually colloquial known as Indian beads. I didn't talk about the Japanese soldiers. So. Oh, uh, you would huh. think, why wouldn't they just use a flashlight? You know, um, yeah, right. <laughs> so they, they, you could basically have like a jar or a pocket or something, a pouch of dried uh, ostracods, and then you just add water and crush them, and you get this beautiful blue glowing bioluminescence. And they could, and even after months, you know, of being dried. Oh, cool! And and it created the perfect amount of light that you could read a map or a letter with, but would not give away their position. It was not sure. so bright that it would give away their position. So uh, yeah, they, they, more like adapted a, right, eyes either. That's true. Mark so a glow it was sort of on-demand glow stick. Yeah, like sort yeah. of bioluminescent glow stick. How inside. long does it glow? Like I have some, um, what are they called? Dinoflagellates? Like yeah. the, um, but yeah. they, you shake it and it glows. What? Flagellates, <laughs> like flagella. Yeah. yeah. And gotcha. you shake it and they glow, but only for like five seconds and then they so, dim again. Yeah. So the study that I was reading said it depends. They could vary that based upon the mix of enzymes. They could have more of a uh, slow burn that would last a longer time or ones that would be more quick to light up, but then not last as long. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. But it's, you know, a lot it's of times, relatively yeah, short amount of time. Yeah, like you you run your hand through the water and they glow, but then they like decay really quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think these are, these glow for a reasonably long amount of time. Neat. You know, like, like apparently long enough that you could read by it. You know, I, I want to go to that bay. Where's that picture from? I want to visit it. I want to visit these creatures. Yeah, and read some maps Where by their they? light. Yeah, <laughs> crush them up. Yeah, it's cool. Ostracods. Now Very we know cool creature. Very cool. All right, so good job, Bob and Evan. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to start going with Evan every no, time. No, well, no, If you I'm did that, about well, yeah, last week I got So it you wrong. say that, Kara, and then all uh-huh. I have to do is make you go before Evan every time. <laughs> Dang <laughs> it. I mean, I'm never going to go with Evan ever again. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'll Should make that sure work? That, I'll make sure of it. <laughs> all right, Evan, um, do you have a quote? I do. I do. Don't be afraid of hard work. Nothing worthwhile comes easily. Don't let others discourage you or tell you that you can't do it. In my day, I was told women didn't go into chemistry. I saw no reason why we couldn't. And that's a quote from Gertrude B. Elion, 
who was one of the 1988 Nobel Prize for Medicine recipients. Cool. And Mm -hmm. she is credited uh, for having helped develop the first immunosuppressive drug, AZT. No, azathioprine. 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 Used for organ transplants. You do? Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that you have to. Do organ transplants isn't cool. Why would you? You don't well, do. I, you do use, I, I use it for autoimmune disease, neurological autoimmune. Oh, disease that makes sense. So well, they stop attacking pretty their much own brains. Most in, like of those like hardcore immunosuppressive drugs that I'm using for neuroimmunology were developed for organ mm-hmm. rejection. Um, then we just sort of borrow them, you know, for other indications. And part of her yeah. research helped contribute to the development of the AIDS drug AZT, which is why I mentioned AZT before. So we will be launching our brand new newsletter on the seventh. Great! Will you put in- me on the list? <laughs> sure, you're on the list. Thanks. So you could go to our our website, go to the homepage, and we'll have a link on there for you to sign up if you're interested in receiving it. It'll be a monthly newsletter that'll be chock full of interesting things and stuff that the SGU like highlights of what the SGU did the previous month. All right, guys, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 